Yea, I thought that had I now a thousand gallons of blood in my body, I could spill it all for the sake of the Lord Jesus. If you, my brother, far on in the way of salvation, still think sometimes that, after all, you must be a reprobate because of your filthy rags, read what David Bernard wrote in his half-dead hand on the last page of his seraphic journal. How sweet it is to love God and to have a heart all for God. Yes, but a voice answered me, You are not all for God. You are not an angel. To which my whole soul replied, I as sincerely desire to love and glorify God as any angel in heaven. But you are filthy and not fit for heaven. When hereupon there instantly appeared above me and spread over me the blessed robes of Christ's righteousness, which I could not but exult and triumph in. And then I knew that I should be as active as an angel in heaven and should then be forever stripped of my filthy garments and clothed with spotless raiment. Let me die the death of David Brainerd and let my latter end be like his. The third shining one then came forward and set a mark on the forehead of this happy man. And it was a most ancient and a most honorable mark. For it was the same redeeming mark that was set by Moses upon the foreheads of the children of Israel when the Lord took them into covenant with himself at the Passover in the wilderness. It was the same distinguishing mark also that the man with the slaughter weapon in his hand first set upon the foreheads of the men who sighed and cried for the abominations that were done in the midst of Jerusalem. And it was the same glorious mark that John saw in the foreheads of the hundred and forty and four thousand who stood upon Mount Zion and sang a song that no man knew but those men who had been redeemed from the earth by the blood of the Lamb. The mark was set for propriety and for ornament and for beauty. It was set upon his forehead so that all who looked on him ever after might thus know to what company and what country he belonged and that this was not his rest but that he had been called and chosen to a heavenly inheritance. And besides, it was no sooner set upon his forehead than it greatly added to his dignity and his comeliness. He had now the gravity and beauty of an angel, nay, the beauty in his measure and the gravity of goodwill at the gate himself. And then, as if that were not enough, the third shining one also gave him a roll with a seal upon it, which he was bidden look on as he ran, and which he was to give in when he arrived at the celestial gate. Now what was that sealed roll but just the inward memory and record of all this pilgrim's experiences of the grace of God from the day he set out on pilgrimage down to that day when he stood unburdened of his guilt, unclothed of his rags, and clothed upon with a change of raiment. The roll contained his own secret life all sealed and shone in upon by the light of God's countenance. The secret of the Lord with this pilgrim was written within that roll, a secret that no man could read but he himself alone. It was the same roll that the Shining One gave to Abraham, the first pilgrim and the father of all true pilgrims, after Melchizedek, the priest of the Most High God, had brought forth bread and wine and had blessed that great believer. Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. And again after Abram had lost his role, like our pilgrim in the arbor, when he recovered it, he read thus in it, I am the Almighty God, walk before me and be thou perfect, and I will make my covenant between me and thee. And Abram fell on his face for joy. It was the same role out of which the psalmist proposed to read a passage to all those in his day who feared God.
Come in here, all ye that fear God, and I will declare what he hath done for my soul. It was the same role also that God sent to Israel in his sore captivity. Fear not, O Israel, for I have redeemed thee. I have called thee by my name, thou art mine. When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. The high priest Joshua also had the same role put into his hand, and that not only for his own comfort, but to make him the comforter of God's afflicted people. For after the Lord had plucked Joshua as a brand out of the fire, and had made his iniquity to pass from him, and had clothed him with change of raiment, and had set a fair mitre on his head, the Lord gave to Joshua a sealed roll, the contents of which may be read to this day in the book of the prophet Zechariah. Nay, more, will you have me to speak plainly, says great Goodwin on this matter, then though our Lord had the assurance of faith that he was the Son of God, for he knew it out of the scriptures by reading all the prophets, yet to have it sealed to him with joy unspeakable and glorious, this was deferred to the time of his baptism. He was then anointed with the oil of assurance and gladness in a more peculiar and transcendent manner. In his baptism, says Bengel, our Lord was magnificently enlightened. He was previously the Son of God, and yet the power of the divine testimony to his sonship at his baptism long affected him in a lively manner. And we see our Lord reading his role to assure and sustain his heart when all outward appearance and sustenance failed him. There is one who beareth witness of me, and his witness is true. I receive not witness from men. I have a greater witness than even that of John. For the Father himself that hath sent me, he beareth witness of me. No wonder that our heavy-laden pilgrim of yesterday gave three leaps for joy and went on singing with such a roll as that in his bosom. For at that supreme moment he had that inward illumination and assurance sealed on his heart that had so gladdened and sustained so many prophets and psalmists and apostles and saints before his day. And though like Abraham and all the other saints who ever had that noble role put into their keeping, except Jesus Christ, he often lost it, yet as often as he again recovered it, it brought back again with it all his first joy and gladness. But as was said at the beginning, the grace abounding is the best of all our commentaries on the pilgrim's progress. As thus here also, Now had I an evidence, as I thought, of my salvation from heaven, with many golden seals thereon, all hanging in my sight. Now could I remember this manifestation, and that other discovery of grace with comfort, and should often long and desire that the last day were come, that I might be forever inflamed with the sight and joy of him, and communion with him whose head was crowned with thorns, whose face was spit on, and body broken, and soul made an offering for my sins. For whereas before I lay continually trembling at the mouth of hell, now methought I was got so far therefrom that I could not, when I looked back, scarce discern it. And oh, thought I, that I were fourscore years old now, that I might die quickly, that my soul might be gone to rest. Then Christian gave three leaps for joy and went on singing, Thus far did I come laden with my sin, nor could aught ease the grief that I was in, till I came hither. Blessed cross, blessed sepulchre, blessed rather be the man that there was put to shame for me. Chapter 13, page 132 
formalist and hypocrisy, a form of godliness, a quote from Paul. We all began our religious life by being formalists, and we were not altogether to blame for that. Our parents were first to blame for that, and then our teachers, and then our ministers. They made us say our psalm and our catechism to them, and if we only said our sacred lesson without stumbling, we were straightway rewarded with their highest praise. They seldom took the trouble to make us understand the things we said to them. They were more than content with our correct repetition of the words. We were never taught either to read or repeat with our eyes on the object. We had come to our manhood before we knew how to seek for the visual image that lies at the root of all our words. And thus the ill-taught schoolboy became in us the father of the confirmed formalist. The mischief of this neglect still spreads through the whole of our life, but it is absolutely disastrous in our religious life. Look at the religious formalist at family worship with his household gathered round about him, all in his own image. He would not on any account let his family break up any night without the habitual duty. He has a severe method in his religious duties that nothing is ever allowed to disarrange or in any way to interfere with. As the hour strikes, the big Bible is brought out. He opens where he left off last night. He reads the regulation chapter. He leads the singing in the regulation psalm. And then, as from a book, he repeats his regulation prayer. But he never says a word to show that he either sees or feels what he reads and his household break up without an idea in their heads or an affection in their hearts. He comes to church and goes through public worship in the same wooden way, and he sits through the Lord's table in the same formal and ceremonious manner. He has eyes of glass and hands of wood, and a heart without either blood or motion in it. His mind and his heart were destroyed in his youth, and all his religion is a religion of rites and ceremonies without sense or substance. Because I knew no better, says Bunyan, I fell in very eagerly with the religion of the times, to wit, to go to church twice a day, and that too with the foremost. And there should I sing and say as others did. Withal, I was so overrun with the spirit of superstition that I adored, and that with great devotion, even all things, both the high place, priest, clerk, vestment, service, and what else belonged to the church, counting all things holy that were therein contained. But all this time I was not sensible of the danger and evil of sin. I was kept from considering that sin would damn me, what religion soever I followed, unless I was found in Christ. Nay, I never thought of Christ, nor whether there was one or no. A formalist is not yet a hypocrite exactly, but he is now ready and well on the way at any moment to become a hypocrite. As soon now as some temptation shall come to him to make appear another and a better man than he really is, when in some way it becomes his advantage to seem to other people to be a spiritual man, when he thinks he sees his way to some profit or praise by saying things and doing things that are not true and natural to him, then he will pass on from being a bare and simple formalist and will henceforth become a hypocrite. He has never had any real possession or experience of spiritual things amid all his formal observances of religious duties, and he has little or no difficulty, therefore, in adding another formality or two to his former life of unreality. And thus the transition is easily made from a comparatively innocent and unconscious formalist 
to a conscious and studied hypocrite. An hypocrite, says Samuel Rutherford, is he who on the stage represents a king when he is none, a beggar, an old man, a husband, when he is really no such thing. To the Hebrews, they were face men, dyed men, red men, birds of many colors. You may paint a man, you may paint a rose, you may paint a fire burning, but you cannot paint a soul or the smell of a rose or the heat of a fire. And it is hard to counterfeit spiritual graces, such as love to Christ, sincere intending of the glory of God, and such like spiritual things. Yes, indeed, it is hard to put on and to go through with a truly spiritual grace, even to the best and most spiritually minded of men. And as for the true hypocrite, he never honestly attempts it. If he ever did honestly and resolutely attempt it, he would at once in that pass out of the ranks of the hypocrites altogether and pass over into a very different category. Bunyan lets us see how a formalist and a hypocrite and a Christian all respectively do when they come to a real difficulty. The three pilgrims were all walking in the same path and with their faces for the time in the same direction. They had not held much conference together since their first conversation, and as time goes on, Christian has no more talk but with himself, and that sometimes sighingly, and sometimes more comfortably. When all at once the three men come on the hill of difficulty. A severe act of self-denial has to be done at this point of their pilgrimage. A proud heart has to be humbled to the dust. A second, a third, a tenth place has to be taken in the praise of men. An outbreak of anger and wrath has to be kept under for hours and days. A great injury, a scandalous case of ingratitude, has to be forgiven and forgotten. In short, as Rutherford says, an impossible-to-be-counterfeited spiritual grace has to be put into its severest and sorest exercise, and the result was what we know. Our pilgrim went and drank of the spring that always runs at the bottom of the hill of difficulty, and thus refreshed himself against that hill while formalist took the one low road and hypocrisy the other which led him into a wide field full of dark mountains where he stumbled and fell and rose no more. When after his visit to the spring Christian began to go up the hill saying This hill, though high, I covet to ascend. The difficulty will not me offend for I perceive the way of life lies here. Come, pluck up heart, let's neither faint nor fear. Better though difficult the right way to go then wrong, though easy, where the end is woe. Now all this brings us to the last step in the evolution of a perfect hypocrite out of a simple formalist. The perfect and finished hypocrite is not your commonplace and vulgar scoundrel of the playwright and the penny novelist type. The finest hypocrite is a character their art cannot touch. The worst of hypocrites, Rutherford goes on to say, is he who whitens himself till he deceives himself. It is strange that a man has such power over himself, but a man's heart may deceive his heart, and he may persuade himself that he is godly and righteous when he knows nothing about it. Preaching in a certain place, says Boston, after supper, the mistress of the house told me how I had terrified God's people. This was by my doctrine of self-love, self-righteousness, self-ends, and such like. She restricted hypocrites to that sort that do all things to be seen of men, and harped much on this. How can one be a hypocrite who hates hypocrisy in other people? 
how can one be a hypocrite and not know it? All this led me to see the need of such doctrine. And if only to show you that this is not the dismal doctrine of antediluvian Presbyterians only, Canon Mosley says, The Pharisee did not know that he was a Pharisee. If he had known it, he would not have been a Pharisee. He does not know that he is a hypocrite. The vulgar hypocrite knows that he is a hypocrite because he deceives others, but the true scripture hypocrite deceives himself. And the most subtle teacher of our century or of any century has said, What is a hypocrite? We are apt to understand by a hypocrite one who makes a profession of religion for secret ends without practicing what he professes, who is malevolent, covetous, or profligate while he assumes an outward sanctity in his words and conduct, and who so does so deliberately, deceiving others, and not at all self-deceived. But this is not what our Savior seems to have meant by a hypocrite, nor were the Pharisees such. The Pharisees deceived themselves as well as others. Indeed, it is not in human nature to deceive others for any long time without in a measure deceiving ourselves also. When they began, each in his turn, to deceive the people, they were not at the moment self-deceived. But by degrees they forgot that outward ceremonies avail nothing without inward purity. They did not know themselves, and they, unawares, deceived themselves as well as the people. What a terrible light, as of the last day itself, does all that cast upon the formalisms and the hypocrisies of such our own religious life is full. And what a terrible light it casts on those miserable men who are complete and finished in their self-deception. For the complete and finished hypocrite is not he who thinks that he is better than all other men. That is hopeless enough. But the paragon of hypocrisy is he who does not know that he is worse than all other men. And in his stone blindness to himself, and consequently to all reality and inwardness and spirituality in religion, you see him intensely interested in, and day and night occupied with, the outside things of religion till nothing short of a miracle will open his eyes. See him in the ministry, for instance, sweating at his sermons, and in his visiting till you would think almost that he is the minister of whom Paul prophesied, who should spend and be spent for the salvation of men's souls. But all the time such is the hypocrisy that haunts the ministerial calling, he is really, and at bottom, animated with ambition for the praise of men only, and for the increase of his congregation. See him again now assailing or now defending a church's secular privileges and he knowing no more all the time what a church has been set up for on earth than the man in the moon. What a penalty his defense is and his support to a church of Christ and what an incubus his membership must be. Or see him again making long speeches and many prayers for the extension of the kingdom of Christ and all the time spending ten times more on wine or whiskey or tobacco or on books or pictures or foreign travel than he gives to the cause of home or foreign missions. And so on through our hypocritical and self-blinded life. Through such stages and to such a finish does the formalist pass from his thoughtless and neglected youth to his hardened, blinded, self-seeking life spent in the ostensible service of the Church of Christ. If the light that is in such men be darkness, how great is that darkness! We may all well shudder as we hear our Lord saying to ministers 
and members and church defenders and church supporters like ourselves. Now ye say, We see, therefore your sin remaineth. Now the first step to the cure of all such hypocrisy and to the salvation of our souls is to know that we are hypocrites and to know also what that is in which we are most hypocritical. Well, there are two absolutely infallible tests of a true hypocrite, tests warranted to unmask, expose, and condemn the most finished, refined, and even evangelical hypocrite in this house tonight or in all the world. By far and away the best and swiftest is prayer. True prayer, that is. For here again our unconquerable hypocrisy comes in and leads us down to perdition even in our prayers. There is nothing our Lord more bitterly and more contemptuously assails the Pharisees for than just the length, the loudness, the number, and the publicity of their prayers. The truth is, public prayer, for the most part, is no true prayer at all. It is, at best, an open homage paid to secret prayer. We make such shipwrecks of devotion in public prayer that if we have a shred of true religion about us, we are glad to get home and to shut our door. We preach in our public prayers. We make speeches on public men and on public events in our public prayers. We see the reporters all the time in our public prayers. We do everything but pray in our public prayers. And to get away alone... What an escape that is from the temptations and defeats of public prayer. No, public prayer is no test whatever of a hypocrite. A hypocrite revels in public prayer. It is secret prayer that finds him out. And even secret prayer will sometimes deceive us. We are crushed down on our secret knees sometimes by sheer shame and the strength of conscience. Fear of exposure, fear of death and hell will sometimes make us shut our door. A flood of passing feeling will sometimes make us pray for a season in secret. Job had all that before him when he said, Will the hypocrite delight himself in the Almighty? Will he always call upon God? No, he will not. And it is just here that the hypocrite and the true Christian best discover themselves both to God and to themselves. The true Christian will, as Job again says, pray in secret till God slays him. He will pray in his dreams, He will pray till death. He will pray after he is dead. Are you in earnest then not to be any more a hypocrite and to know the infallible marks of such? Ask the key of your closet door. Ask the chair at your bedside. Ask the watchman what you were doing and why your light was in so long. Ask the birds of the air and the beasts of the field and the crows on the plowed lands after your solitary walk. Almost a better test of true and false religion than even secret prayer, but a test that is far more difficult to handle, is our opinion of ourselves. In his last analysis of the truly justified man and the truly reprobate, our Lord made the deepest test to be their opinion of themselves. God, I thank thee that I am not as this publican, said the hypocrite. God, be merciful to me a sinner, said the true penitent. And then this fine principle comes in here, not only to speed the sure sanctification of a true Christian, but also, if he has skill and courage to use it, for his assurance and comfort, that the saintlier he becomes and the riper for glory, the more he will beat his breast over what yet abides within his breast. Yes, a man's secret opinion of himself is almost a better test of his true spiritual state than even secret prayer. 
But then these two are not competing and exclusive tests. They always go together and are never found apart. And at the mouth of these two witnesses every true hypocrite shall be condemned and every true Christian justified. Dr. Pusey says somewhere that the perfect hypocrite is the man who has the truth of God in his mind but is without the love of God in his heart. Truth without love, says the saintly scholar, makes a finished Pharisee. Now we Scottish and free church people believe we have the truth if any people on the face of the earth have it. And if we have not love mixed with it, you see where and what we are. We are called to display a banner because of the truth, but let love always be our flagstaff. Let us be jealous for the truth, but let it be a godly, that is to say, a loving jealousy. When we contend for purity of doctrine and for purity of worship, when we protest against popery and priestcraft, when we resist rationalism and infidelity, when we do battle now for national religion, as we call it, and now for the freedom of the church, let us do it all in love to all men, else we had better not do it at all. If we cannot do it with clean and all men loving hearts, let us leave all debate and contention to stronger and better men than we are. The truth will never be advanced or guarded by us, nor will the Lord of truth and love accept our service or bless our souls, till we have put on the divine nature and have our hearts and our mouths still more full of love than our minds or our mouths are full of truth. Let us watch ourselves, lest with all our so-called love of truth we be found reprobates at last, because we loved the truth for some selfish or party end, and even hated and despised our brother, and believed all evil and disbelieved all good concerning our brother. Truth without love makes a hypocrite, says Dr. Pusey, and evangelical truth without evangelical love makes an evangelical hypocrite says Thomas Shepard. Only where the whole truth is united to a heart full of love have we the perfect New Testament Christian. Chapter 14, page 143 Timorous and Mistrust There is a lion in the way. A quote from the slothful man. I must venture, said Christian. I at any rate must venture, said Christian, to timorous and mistrust. Whatever you may do, I must venture, even if the lions you speak of should pull me to pieces. I for one shall never go back. To go back is nothing but death. To go forward is fear of death and everlasting life beyond it. I will yet go forward. So mistrust and timorous ran down the hill, and Christian went on his way. George Oper says, in his notes on this passage, that civil despotism and ecclesiastical tyranny so terrified many young converts in John Bunyan's day that multitudes turned back like mistrust and timorous, while at the same time many like Bunyan himself went forward and for a time fell into the lion's mouth. Civil despotism and ecclesiastical tyranny do not stand in our way as they stood in Bunyan's way, at least not in the same shape. But every age has its own lions, and every Christian man has his own lions that neither civil despots nor ecclesiastical tyrants know anything about. Now who or what is the lion in your way? Who or what is it that fills you with such timorousness and mistrust that you are almost turning back from the way to life altogether? The fiercest of all our lions is our own sin. 
when a man's own sin not only finds him out and comes roaring after him, but when it dashes past him and gets into the woods and thickets before him and stands pawing and foaming on the side of his way, that is a trial of faith and love and trust indeed. Sometimes a man's past sins will fill all his future life with sleepless apprehensions. He is never sure at what turn in his upward way he may not suddenly run against some of them standing ready to rush out upon him. And it needs no little quiet trust and humble-minded resignation to carry a man through this slough and that bottom, up this hill and down that valley, all the time with his life in his hand, and yet at every turn, at every rumor that there are lions in the way, to say, Come lion, come lamb, come death, come life, I must venture, I will yet go forward. As Job also, that wonderful saint of God, said, Hold your peace, let me alone that I may speak, and let come on me what will. Wherefore do I take my flesh in my teeth, and put my life in my hand? Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. He also shall be my salvation, for an hypocrite shall not come before him. One false step, one stumble in life, one error in judgment, one outbreak of an unbridled temperament, one small sin, if it is even so much as a sin, of ignorance or of infirmity, will sometimes not only greatly injure us at the time, but in some cases will fill all our future life with trials and difficulties and dangers. Many of us shall have all our days to face a future of defeat, humiliation, impoverishment, and many hardships that has not come on us on account of any presumptuous transgression of God's law, so much as simply out of some combination of unfortunate circumstances in which we may have only done our duty, but have not done it in the most serpent-like way. And when we are made to suffer unjustly or disproportionately all our days for our error of judgment, or our want of the wisdom of this world, or what not, we are sorely tempted to be bitter and proud and resentful and unforgiving, and to go back from duty and endurance and danger altogether. But we must not. We must rather say to ourselves, now and here, if not in the past, I must play the man, and by God's help the wise man. I must pluck safety henceforth out of the heart of the metal danger. Yes, I made a mistake. I did what I would not do now, and I must not be too proud to say so. I acted, I see now, precipitately, inconsiderately, imprudently, and I must not gloom and rebel and run away from the cross and the lion. I must not insist or expect that the always wise and prudent man's reward is to come to me. The lion in my way is a lion of my own rearing, and I must not turn my back on him even if he should be let loose to leap on me and rend me. I must pass under his paw and through his teeth, if need be, to a life with him and beyond him of humility and duty and quiet-hearted submission to his God and mine. Then again our salvation itself sometimes, our true sanctification, puts on a lion's skin and not unsuccessfully imitates an angry lion's roar. Some saving grace that up till now we have been fatally lacking in lies under the very lip of that lion we see standing straight in our way. God in his wisdom so orders our salvation that we must work out the best part of it with fear and trembling. Right before us, just beside us, 
standing over us with his heavy paw upon us is a lion from under whose paw and from between whose teeth we must pluck and put on that grace in which our salvation lies. Repentance and reformation lie in the way of that lion. Resignation also and humility. The crucifixion of our own will. The sacrifice of our own heart. In short, everything that is still lacking but is indispensable to our salvation lies through that den of lions. One man here is homeless and loveless. Another is childless. Another has a home and children and much envies the man who has neither. One has talents there is no scope for. Another has the scope but not the sufficient talent. Another must now spend all his remaining life in a place where he sees that anger and envy and jealousy and malevolence will be his roaring lions daily seeking to devour his soul. There is not a Christian man or woman in this house whose salvation, worth being called a salvation, does not lie through such a lion's thicket as that. Our Lord himself was a roaring lion to John the Baptist, for the Baptist's salvation lay not in his powerful preaching, but in his being laid aside from all preaching, not in his crowds increasing, but in his successors' crowds increasing and his decreasing. The Baptist was the greatest born of women in that day, not because he was a thundering preacher, any ordinary mother in Israel might have been his mother in that, but to decrease sweetly and to steal down quietly to perfect humility and self-oblivion. That salvation was reserved for the son of Elizabeth alone. I would not like to say who that is chomping and pulling for your blood right in your present way. Reverence will not let me say who it is. Only you venture on him. Yes, I will venture, said Christian, to the two terrified and retreating men. Now every true venture is made against risk and uncertainty, against anxiety and danger and fear. And it is just this that constitutes the nobleness and blessedness of faith. Faith sells all for Christ. Faith risks all for eternal life. Faith faces all for salvation. When it is at the worst, faith still says very well. Even if there is no celestial city anywhere in the world, it is better to die still seeking it than to live on in the city of destruction. Even if there is no Jesus Christ, I have read about him and heard about him and pictured him to myself. Tell, say what you will, I shall die kissing and embracing that divine image I have in my heart. Even if there is neither mercy seat nor intercession in heaven, I shall henceforth pray without ceasing. Far, far better for me all the rest of my sinful life to be clothed with sackcloth and ashes, even if there is no fountain opened in Jerusalem for sin and uncleanness and no change of raiment. Christian protested that as for him, lions and all, he had no choice left. And no more have we. He must away somewhere, anywhere from his past life, and so must we. If all the lions that ever drank blood are to collect upon his way, let them do so. They shall not make him turn back. Why should they? What is a whole forest full of lions to a heart and life full of sin? Lions are like lambs compared with sin. Good morning. I for one must venture. I shall yet go forward. So mistrust and timorous ran down the hill, and Christian went on his way. 
So I saw in my dream that he made haste and went forward, that if possible he might get lodging in the house called Beautiful that stood by the highway side. Now before he had gone far he entered into a very narrow passage which was about a furlong off from the porter's lodge. And looking very narrowly before him as he went, he espied two lions in the way. Then was he afraid and thought also to go back, for he thought that nothing but death was before him. But the porter at the lodge, whose name was Watchful, perceiving that Christian made a halt, as if he would go back, cried unto him, saying, Is thy strength so small? Fear not the lions, for they are chained, and are only placed there for the trial of faith where it is, and for the discovery of those who have none. Keep the midst of the path, and no hurt shall come to thee. Yes, that is all we have to do. Whatever our past life may have been, whatever our past sins, past errors of judgment, past mistakes and mishaps, whatever of punishment or chastisement or correction or instruction or sanctification and growth in grace may be under those lion skins and between their teeth for us, all we have got to do at present is to leave the lions to him who set them there and to go on up to them and past them, keeping always to the midst of the path. The lions may roar at us till they have roared us deaf and blind, but we are far safer in the midst of that path than we would be in our own bed. Only let us keep in the midst of the path. When their breath is hot and full of blood on our cheek, when they paw up the blinding earth, when we feel as if their teeth had closed round our heart, still all the more let us keep in the midst of the path. We must sometimes walk on a razor edge of fear and straightforwardness, that is the only way left for us now. But then we have the divine assurance that on that perilous edge no hurt shall come to us. Temptations, says our author in another place, when we meet them at first are as the lion that roared upon Samson. But if we overcome them, the next time we see them we shall find a nest of honey in them. O God, for grace and sense and imagination to see and understand and apply all that to our own daily life. O to be able to take all that home tonight and see it all there. Lions and runaways, venturesome souls, narrow paths, palaces of beauty, everlasting life and all. Open thou our eyes that we may see the wonderful things that await us in our own house at home. Things out of hope are compassed oft with venturing. So they are, and so they were that day with our terrified pilgrim. He made a venture at the supreme moment of his danger, and things that were quite out of all hope but an hour before were then compassed and ever after possessed by him. Make the same venture then yourselves tonight, not venture, not have. Your lost soul is not much to venture, but it is all that Christ at this moment asks of you, that you leave your lost soul in his hand and then go straight on from this moment in the middle of the path, the path that is, as your case may be, of purity, humility, submission, resignation, and self-denial. Keep your mind and your heart, your eyes and your feet in the very middle of that path, and you shall have compassed the house beautiful before you know. The lions shall soon be behind you, and the grave and graceful damsels of the house, discretion and prudence and piety and charity, shall all be waiting upon you. Chapter 15, page 151 Prudence, 
Let a man examine himself. A quote from Paul. Let a man examine himself, says the apostle to the Corinthians, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. And thus it was that before the pilgrim was invited to sit down at the supper table in the house beautiful, quite a number of most pointed and penetrating questions were put to him by those who had charge of that house and its supper table. And thus the time was excellently improved till the table was spread, while the short delay and the successive exercises whetted to an extraordinary sharpness the pilgrim's hunger for the supper. Piety and Charity, who had joint charge of the house from the master of the house, held each a characteristic conversation with Christian, but it was left to prudence to hold the most particular discourse with him until supper was ready. And it is to that so particular discourse that I much wish to turn your attention tonight. With great tenderness, but at the same time with the greatest possible gravity, Prudence asked the pilgrim whether he did not still think sometimes of the country from whence he had come out. Yes, he replied, how could I help thinking continually of that unhappy country and of my sad and miserable life in it? But believe me, or rather you cannot believe me, with what shame and detestation I always think of my past life. My face burns as I now speak of my past life to you and as I think what my old companions know and must often say about me. I detest, as you cannot possibly understand, every remembrance of my past life and I hate and never can forgive myself who with mine own hands so filled all my past life with shame and self-contempt. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.stillwater.com swrb.com We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com by phone at 780-450-3730 by fax at 780-468-1096 or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue Edmonton, that's E-D- M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves 
would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.